So I titled the message today, uh, Paul Among the Philosophers. And, and that, of course, is what um, we have here in this story. Now, it was because of persecution in Thessalonica and then uh, also in Berea uh, that Paul is actually forced to go to Athens. Uh, whether or not Paul intended to go to Athens, we do not know. Um, you know, but, but he's there really as a result of circumstances beyond uh, his control. So while he's there, he's there by himself, he's waiting for <clears throat> Silas and Timothy to, to join him. He, um, as, as he's going about the city, uh, we see that... Um, he is sharing the gospel in the, in the synagogues. That was his normal uh, practice if, if there was a synagogue in a city, as we've seen in the past. And uh, basically, just wherever uh, he could find an audience, he, he was looking to share the gospel. And so he has this encounter with these philosophers, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And, and this opens up a door for Paul to speak at the Areopagus. Now, we'll talk in a moment about what that actually was. But this is really an amazing gospel opportunity for uh, Paul in his day. So uh, this is what I want to do. I want to look at the background to this opportunity that opened up for Paul. Uh, I want to look at his method and his message. And then finally, I want to appeal uh, to those that, that might have similar kinds of um, mental giftings to uh, use those gifts for God's glory. And let me just say up front here, this whole encounter is something that not, not just anybody could have really engaged in. It took a special person to do what Paul did here. And as, as we see, you know, God has... Uh, all different kinds of servants yeah, with, with uh, all different types of giftings. Paul had a unique gift set uh, that really enabled him to effectively minister in this case. So we want to kind of look at that. But as we make our way there, let's for just a quick second talk about the city of Athens. Um, just like today, probably all of us know um, something, at least uh, a little bit, about ancient Athens. Um, in that day, everybody knew about Athens. Athens had been the foremost Greek city-state since the 5th century BC. And even after its incorporation into the Roman Empire, it retained a proud intellectual independence. Um, I mean, if you think about it, the, the city uh, had a rich uh, philosophical tradition, uh, names like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, names that we're still familiar with today. Uh, they were the, um, you know, the foundational philosophers there uh, in that ancient city. Um, it's literature, art. Um, it was notable for achievements in the cause of human liberty. Uh, of course, even today, people would say that democracy kind of had its birth in um, ancient Athens. 
And uh, all the way up until Paul's time, it still retained an unrivaled reputation as the empire's intellectual metropolis. So this is, this is like the Roman Empire's intellectual center. So between Rome itself and Athens, uh, you know, the, these are the two centers of, of intellect. They're the centers of, of culture and, and, you know, politics and all of those kinds of things. So this is uh, the place that Paul comes to. Now, I want to look at um, four things regarding Paul here. Uh, let, let's look at what Paul saw when he was there, uh, what he felt about what he saw, what he did about it, and ultimately we want to look at what he said. So, so when Paul arrived in, in, in Athens, um, he would have seen, well, of course, he would have seen the uh, magnificent structures of the Acropolis. Uh, if you've ever taken a trip to Greece, even today, um, there on the Acropolis, you still have the, the ruins of these ancient temples, particularly the, the Parthenon. And it, it's, a, it's a very, even, even you know, 2,500 years later, 2,600 years later, it's still a magnificent structure to this very day. But it would have been all in its, uh, of course, in its heyday at the time that Paul uh, would have been there. Well, its heyday was earlier, but it, but it was still fully uh, intact as it would have been even a few centuries earlier. Um, so he would have seen that. Um, and then there is the, uh, what is translated here, the marketplace, uh, is the Greek word, the agora. We say agora, but the proper pronunciation is agora. And, and that was, it's translated marketplace, but you know, for us, that doesn't help that much because, you know, you think of maybe like Tustin Marketplace or something like that, uh, a parking lot with a bunch of shops <laughs> that you can go shopping in. That's not exactly what the marketplace in those days was. Um, as a matter of fact, the Agora there in Athens uh, was, again, it was, um, it was filled with beautiful architecture. Uh, it was uh, artistically, uh, these these painted porticos, you know, it was a really an amazing place. And, and it was a center of uh, Greek life and thought. That's really what the, the marketplace was. So Paul saw those things, but he also saw idols. He saw an endless sea of idols. Uh, Xenophon, the, the Greek philosopher and historian, referred to Athens as one great altar and sacrifice to the gods. So it, it, some, some said there were more gods in Athens than there were people. And one uh, Roman satirist basically said uh, that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. So this is what Paul sees when he comes to Athens. Now, like I said, remember, Paul is a Jew. And if there's one thing that Jews know uh, that God does not approve of, it's idols. And yet, Paul is now in this city that is just utterly filled with idols. So it says that while he was there in Athens, his spirit was provoked. So 
so how did Paul feel about this? Well, his spirit was provoked. Um, the NIV tr uh, translates this greatly distressed. And the word here could actually uh, also be describing anger. So Paul saw this and he was, he was very agitated in his spirit over what he saw. Paul was really, in a sense, he was angered because as a Jew, he knows that idols are an affront to God. And, and so his reaction is really based on his zeal for God. Paul looks at this and basically just says, this is wrong. This is wrong. All of these idols, these people worshiping idols. So Paul knows two things. He knows idols are an affront to God, but he also knows that idols are detrimental to people. That uh, those who serve idols, uh, idols are destructive. They never deliver what, what they promise. So, so this has provoked Paul. This has really stirred him up. And as a result of that, what did he do? It says there that he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the agora, the marketplace, daily with those who happened to be there. So this moved Paul to start to go forward with the gospel. Now remember, Paul is not, this is not part of the missionary journey. At least it wasn't on the itinerary. Paul is in Athens because he's, he's, he had to flee for his life from Berea. And what he's you know, mainly doing in Athens, he's just waiting for his uh, team workers to show up so they can head on to the next location. But you see in this that, that God sovereignly puts Paul in this place. And so Paul, undoubtedly recognizing that at a certain point, like, okay, I'm here. God's placed me here. So he begins to reason. Now, we, we looked previously at the idea of reasoning. Remember, we talked about reasoning from the scriptures. And it's the same word. So this, is, this was what Paul did. Now, in this particular case, especially when it comes to what was happening in the marketplace, the agora, um, Paul wasn't so much preaching as he was discussing, uh, debating, uh, arguing, but you know, in a, in a, in a good sense, uh, because that's what you did in that environment in the culture. Now he goes into the synagogue and he starts there with the Jews and we can be fairly confident that he did the similar thing with the Jews that he had previously done. He points them to the scriptures and shows them that Jesus is a fulfillment of the scriptures. But then when he gets out into the marketplace, it's a different situation. And as we look at Paul's method, we see that Paul uses a different method when he's ministering in the, in the marketplace, in the agora. He uses a different method. It's a method of, um, basically, it, it's a, it's a conversational method. Uh, method. It's a, it's a discussion. It's a debate. It's, it's, you know, stirring things up. And it says with anybody who would listen to him. So Paul's solution to the problem of idolatry was to present Christ, to present Jesus. 
We live in a world of idols, just like the Athenians did. Ours are, are different, but they're very much uh, idols. And as we've been seeing all the way through Acts here, the, the answer is always to get the gospel to people. And that's what Paul understood, and that's what he did. Now, um, it says that as he was going about this, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they encountered him. So just really quick, um, without going into any lengthy detail and probably an oversimplification of, of who they were, uh, the Epicureans were the followers of Epicurus and the Stoics were the followers of a man named Zeno. And uh, the Epicureans were really, to put it in a, in a context we can understand, and they were very much this, they were the cultural liberals. Uh, they were the relativist of the day. Um, they actually believed that there was no real meaning or purpose to life, um, although they didn't believe in scientific naturalism or evolution as we know it today. They did think that everything just kind of <clears throat> randomly came into existence with no real rhyme or reason behind it. And so their, their main emphasis was uh, to enjoy life. The Epicureans were about pleasure. Now the Stoics, on the other hand, uh, they were different. Uh, they were very much the cultural conservatives. They were the, the absolutist at the time. And um, for them, life was about virtue and duty. You know, sometimes if you, if you see, uh, see a person who has, uh, you know, no real emotional reaction to uh, something that there should have been an emotional reaction to, you say, wow, that person was pretty stoic. Well, it, it comes from this, this philosophy that you just, you know, you kind of just, um, it's like, like the British, you know, back in the Second World War when they were bombing London, what was the counsel? Uh, be calm and carry on. You know, the bomb's blowing up around you, just don't even let it phase you. Don't, don't show fear, don't show anxiety. Uh, that was pretty much the mentality of uh, the Stoics. And the Stoics, um, Epicureans took their name from their founder, Epicurus. The Stoics took their name from the portico. Uh, the Stoa is what it was called in the Greek. That's where they met. So they took their name from the place they met. Now, these, so these guys are actually, you know, Paul's, in, he's engaging with whoever he can in the marketplace. But now these Philosophers, these, these guys are bona fide philosophers. They uh, engage Paul, and it says that uh, there's, there's the question, uh, what, does, uh, what does this babbler want to say? Uh, that was not a flattering comment, referring to him as a babbler. Uh, the Greek word is uh, a seed picker. And the idea was that Paul was a guy who just picked up little bits of information here or there and kind of put together his own theory about things. And, um, you know, it was a, a term of derision. Uh, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Notice it says he's a proclaimer of foreign gods, plural. And here's the reason why they said gods, 
because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. You see, in Greek, the, the word for resurrection is anastasis. That was also a, a woman's name. So to some, they thought Paul was talking about a male deity and a female deity. He's preaching these foreign gods. They, they weren't even clear that uh, at this point that Paul was preaching uh, actually a, a resurrection. So they want to be able to examine more thoroughly what he's saying. So they invite Paul now to the Areopagus. Now, the, this word means the hill or really literally it means more the rock of Ares or the hill of Ares. Uh, Ares was the, the Greek god of war. And so this is connected to a myth back in their, in their history. And um, in classical times, uh, this Areopagus functioned as a court. But in Paul's day, it was really um, not, not even so much the location because they probably had shifted to the, uh, to the Agora as their meeting place. But it, in Paul's day, this was a council of the intellectual and the cultural elites. So what they're basically doing here is they're inviting Paul to come and to speak to um, the, the cultural uh, influencers of the day. So this, this is an amazing opportunity for Paul here. And so he is uh, brought before them. And so they took him, verse 19, they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke adds this comment for all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So here's Paul. Now, here's the question. How, how would you even begin to address a, a group of people like this? And this is where we see the uniqueness of Paul in some ways. This is where we see the, the brilliance of Paul, the wisdom that he had. And it's also where we see uh, something about Paul's um, culture. Uh, Paul was a, a cultured person in the sense that he was a person who had a broad uh, understanding of things in his time. And where some of the, you know, some of the other apostles, of course, having had their entire life experience limited to uh, the land of Israel, many of them to the northern region, the Galilee. Um, you know, their cultural experience would have been relatively limited um, in comparison to Paul. So Paul was a man who kind of had a, a much broader cultural experience. So where for some, of course, among the Jews, for some people, uh, a situation like this would just freak them out. I mean, just showing up in Athens, they couldn't have even handled it. They're like, oh, these idols, I gotta get out of here. I can't, I can't take this. Uh, but that wasn't the case for Paul. He was provoked, but it wasn't like, I gotta get out of here because there's too many idols. He's like, I gotta engage these people about these idols. And so, 
Notice what he does, though, and this is where you see his brilliance. So he stood in the midst of the Areopagus. He stood in the midst of this council, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are very religious. Now, the King James Version uh, translates this word religious as superstitious, which is really not the right way to translate it. Uh, Because, you know, if you stood in front of these guys and said, man, you guys are so superstitious, that would have slammed the door immediately for any, you know, further ability to share. Because, you know, when you, when you approach somebody and offend them right off the bat, it kind of closes the door for any further real, you know, opportunity. And so this is where we can learn some stuff from Paul. Because we look at certain things, just like Paul saw in his day, and and our tendency might be sometimes to just automatically say how horrible that is, how bad that is, how evil that is. And it's probably indeed the case, but it doesn't really lend itself. If we take that approach, it doesn't lend itself to us being able to get the gospel to people. So we see Paul's method was, it was a wise method. So he says, so he's going to meet them on their own turf, so to speak. He says, well, you're obviously religious. I mean, you know, Athens is one big uh, altar and one big sacrifice. You're, You're very religious people. And I even noticed as I was walking through, I saw that there was a shrine to the unknown God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to you about the unknown God. So you see, here's Paul. This is so, this is brilliant the way he approaches it. He takes something that's theirs and he says, okay, I'm going to use this to tell you the truth about God. And what we see here with Paul, and this is the way that we can understand this, Paul is redeeming certain aspects of culture and using those things for the furtherance of the gospel. You see, there's a couple of different approaches. One approach is to disconnect, disengage from culture. All culture outside of the church is bad, so stay away from it. That wasn't Paul's mentality. Paul's mentality was, hey, this is the world we're in, and so I'm going to take from, from what I can get a hold of in this culture, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to turn it around, and I'm going to use it for a presentation of, in this case, of course, it's the true God, the God that you worship without knowing him, I am going to proclaim to you. So he meets them on their own turf, turf, and he begins to speak to them about the unknown God. And he tells them five things about this God that they need to know. Starting in verse 24, he tells them, first of all, that he's the creator of the universe. Look what he says. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. So that's where he starts. Because, of course, they had temples everywhere. And Paul says, no, this God that you don't know, I'm going to tell you, he doesn't dwell in a temple because he made everything. A, A temple couldn't even contain him. Remember, even the temple in Jerusalem, which was the place where God chose to reside, um, 
Solomon understood when he made it, the heavens of the heavens can't contain you, he said, much less this temple. And so Paul is just uh, presenting to them that there is a God who made everything and who, since he made everything, he's not going to be dwelling in one of these temples that people have made. Secondly, he tells them that he is the sustainer of life. Look at the next verse. Nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life and breath and all things. So, so Paul presents God as a God who, you see, among, among the Greeks, the gods needed to be worshiped. And if you didn't worship a God, then you, you know, could get in trouble with that God. But Paul says, no, the, this God who doesn't dwell in temples, neither does he need to be worshiped. He doesn't need anything. See, God doesn't call us to worship him because he needs to be worshiped. God calls us to worship him because we need to worship him. Because we're going to worship something. Every person worships something. And if you worship anything but the true God, it's detrimental to you. Some people say, oh, well, you know, this God of the Bible, he's on such a big ego trip. He wants everybody to worship him. God doesn't need anybody to worship him. God has no deficiency in his nature. Like, man, I don't really feel good about myself today because not that many people are worshiping. You know, I'm looking out at the churches this morning and they're not that crowded. That's going to be a bad day. That's not God. God doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from anybody. As Paul says here, he gives life and breath and all things. And then thirdly, look at what he says. He basically says that he is the ruler over all of the nations. And so in verses 26 through 28, and he made from one blood, or um, the other translations read, and he made from one man, speaking of Adam, either, either way it's saying basically the same thing. He made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the face of all the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring." So God, all of the nations belong to him, all of the people. The world started with one man. And from that one man came that first woman. And, and that's what Paul is saying here. Paul believed in Adam and Eve. He said that's, that's where it all started. And all the nations that have spread out through the world, they came from there. Basically, God, God he owns the nations. He is the Lord over the nations. And then... He says as well that God is the father of humanity. And that's what he says. He says we are his offspring. Now here's a really radical thing that Paul does right here. When, when Paul says that uh, in him we live and move and have our being, uh, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his, also his offspring, Paul is quoting from two Greek poets here. 
So again, you see in, in the synagogue, what's Paul going to do? In the synagogue, Paul is going to, everything is going to, he's going to launch from the, the scriptures. He's going to launch from the, from the text of what we would call the Old Testament, and he's going to preach Christ there. But here among the Greeks who have no relationship with the Old Testament, Paul is actually bringing in their own poets, he says. So what Paul is doing, again, he's redeeming certain aspects of culture where he finds that there's a truth in the culture that he can take and use to proclaim the greater truth of Christ. Paul does it. See, again, some people would say, no, you can't do that. that that's bad because that stuff is bad. Uh, you, you, you don't want to be quoting. Uh, but, but that wasn't Paul's method. Now, here's the really crazy thing uh, where it says here, for we are his offspring, the poem that Paul was quoting from, the reference was to Zeus. We are the offspring of Zeus. And so Paul took something that was even radical because, of course, in the Greek mind, Zeus was the, the great God. So Paul just takes this one statement that we are his offspring, and he's already told him there's a God who created everything. There's a God who sustains everything. And yes, we are, all of us are the offspring of this God. We're all... Um, his, his creation. And so he is the father of all humanity. And so then he says this, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So that's his point. How could a stone produce you or me? How could a metal object produce us? Obviously it can't. So we shouldn't think of God like this. That's what he's saying. Now, the last thing he says about this unknown God is in verses 30 and 31, he says that he is the judge of the world. And so look what he says. Truly, these times of ignorance, where all this idolatry proliferated, uh, God overlooked God overlooked in the sense that God did not bring the judgment that they deserved. He, he overlooked it. But he says, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So God is the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, the father, and now he is the judge. Brilliant. He's talking to the intellectual elites. He's talking to the, the cultural influencers, and he's basically presenting to them uh, the true God. And what does he go on to say? He says that he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So here's now where Paul brings Jesus into the picture. Now, earlier in the marketplace, he obviously he was speaking to them about Jesus and the resurrection. But now he, he takes them through a, a lesson on 
the reality of the one true God and that this one true God is ultimately the judge, but the judge is a man and it's a man that was raised from the dead. So, so God has designated who the judge is by doing something for him that, that has not happened for any other person. This is the way God designates who uh, the judge is. He raises him from the dead. And of course, this would be obvious. The, the answer is obvious, right? It's Jesus that he is referring to here. But notice in the... <laughs> In the, um, the story here, uh, when Paul says that he raised him from the dead, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So it's like, in a sense, Paul didn't even really get to finish the message. But he obviously uh, had follow-up later. And we are told that he um, had an immediate response from a man named Dionysius who was an Areopagite. So he was one of the philosophers, this man Dionysius. And then there was a woman named Damaris and then there were others. Now, some people say, there's two different opinions about the preaching here in Acts 17. Some people say Paul made a huge mistake by trying to be culturally relevant and it's proven by the fact that there were very few converts. They, so they, they said, you know, this, this, was, this was wrong on Paul's part. Um, and, and they follow up on it and say, you see, after Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth. And then in Corinth, he said to the Corinthians, he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, they say that Paul is kind of subtly saying, you know, I, I tried a different method in Athens. It didn't work. So now I'm just going to go back to the Christ and him crucified. Um, a guy named uh, William Ramsey, that was his theory. He came up with that theory. And a lot of people have jumped on it and said, so Paul made a mistake in Acts 17. We shouldn't follow his example there. We just need to stick with quoting the scripture and not worry about cultural references. Other people see Acts 17 as a great model of how you connect with your culture. And I, I tend to see it that way as well. I don't see it as Paul having made a mistake. They say, well, Paul didn't even, he didn't even really preach the cross. Well, he must have because you can't really talk about a resurrection unless somebody's dead, right? And what people fail to realize is this is not a thorough um, word for word account of everything that Paul said. This is Luke's summary of the essence of what Paul said there. So anyway, as we look at this, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because judgment day is coming. And that judgment day is universal. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. So it's universal. The living and the dead, the high and the low, the rich and the poor. Uh, it's all going to be a level, leveled playing field. God, God's going to judge the whole world. Secondly, he's going to judge the world in righteousness. 
God's judgment will be a righteous judgment. Um, all secrets will be revealed. The thoughts and the intents of the heart will be made known. There, there's no possibility when God judges of any kind of a miscarriage of justice. It's going to be a perfectly righteous judgment. And also, it's certain. It's universal, it's righteous, and it's certain. The day has been set and the judge has been appointed. God tells us that right here. It's certain. And although the day has not yet been disclosed, the identity of the judge has been. And the identity of the judge is the one that God raised from the dead, who is Jesus. You know, um, I have often, I love this passage, as a matter of fact, and I have often thought if I ever, you, know, you kind of fantasize about standing before different groups of people, and what would you say? You know, if you, uh, if you were brought before, you know, the, I don't know, you know, the Supreme Court, or if you were brought before the Congress, or, you know, whatever other august body you might uh, be brought before, you know, what would you say? And I've looked at this passage, and I thought, man, I would say this. This, this, this just cuts through everything. Uh, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Doesn't matter who you are, who you think you are, who you're perceived to be, God commands you to repent. Why? Because there's a day he's gonna judge the world in righteousness. And, and this, is, um, this is something that, uh, you know, we need to be reminded of ourselves. And, you know, there, there are times and places where we need to remind other people of this as well. There's a judgment day coming. You know, we live in a time when people just have completely dismissed that from their mind, right? And even in the church today, there, there, are, there are Christians who say, well, you know, there, there isn't really a judgment that's coming. That's, that's the wrong view of God. God is love. Yes, God is love. There's no question about it. But God is just. He's holy. He's righteous. And he has appointed a day on which... He will judge the world in righteousness, and Jesus is that judge. So in looking at Paul's method and his message, he was brilliant. And I, I want to kind of finish things up today by, uh, as I said, a, making an appeal. Because like I said in the beginning, not everybody could have done what Paul did. I mean, I think in my mind of, uh, you know, putting Peter in that context there or, or putting, uh, you know, whoever it might have been, one of the other uh, uh, of the 12 apostles. And, and Paul was really the person. His background, his education, his uh, natural abilities in the sense of his mental capacities and so forth, those, those were all factors um, in his ability to, to be able to present this message to this group of people at the time. Um, so I, I want to read something from John Stott on that very thing. And John Stott was, um, he, he was a person who thought a lot about these kinds of things. He passed away some years back, uh, 
He was one of the leading uh, Anglican evangelicals in the world throughout his generation. Uh, he was at one time the, um, he was actually the, uh, the chaplain to the royal family for some years. Uh, but listen to what he said. And my point is this, uh, there, there was, Paul was uniquely equipped to do what he did. And there are people today who have the same kinds of uh, abilities that are maybe not yet fully developed, but they need to recognize that those abilities are there because God wants to bring them out and use them in these types of ways. So he says this, he says, one cannot help admiring Paul's ability to speak with equal facility to religious people in the synagogue, to casual passers-by in the city square, and to highly sophisticated philosophers, both in the Agora and when they met in council. Today, the nearest equivalent to the synagogue is the church, the place where religious people gather. There is still an important place for sharing the gospel with churchgoers, God-fearing people on the fringe of the church who may attend services only occasionally. So that's the equivalent of the synagogue. The equivalent of the uh, Agora is, um, this will vary in different parts of the world. It may be a park, a city square, a street corner. It could be a marketplace, a pub, a uh, cafe, a coffee bar, uh, a student cafeteria, wherever people meet uh, when they are at leisure. Um, he says, there is a need for gifted evangelists who can make friends and gossip the gospel in such informal settings as these. As for the Areopagus, he says this, it has no precise equivalent in the contemporary world. Perhaps the nearest is the university where many of the country's intelligentsia are to be found. Neither church evangelism nor street evangelism would be uh, effective uh, for them. Instead, we should develop, uh, here's his suggestion, home evangelism in which there is a free discussion, uh, agnostics anonymous groups in which no holds are barred, and uh, lecture evangelism, which contains a strong apologetic content. He says there is an urgent need for more Christian thinkers who will dedicate their minds to Christ, not only as lecturers, but also as authors, journalists, dramatists, uh, broadcasters, script writers, producers, personalities, and as artisan actors who use a variety of art forms in which to communicate the gospel. All these can do battle with contemporary non-Christian philosophies and ideologies in a way which resonates with thoughtful modern men and women and so at least gain a hearing for the gospel by the reasonable, reasonableness of its presentation. The last thing he says is this, and this is important. Christ calls human beings to humble but not to stifle their intellect. So... I agree with Stott here, and I think that this is something that we need to consider. Some people are gifted in ways that other people aren't and are going to be able to have an impact in places that other people will not uh, have even really the opportunity. 
So Paul set, uh, God sets up this amazing opportunity for Paul, but obviously Paul's the guy to do it. I mean, this is the Areopagus. This is the, the intellectual, Athens is the intellectual center of the world. And this, this group, these are the guys. But, but God has fashioned Paul. Paul said that from, uh, he saw himself as set apart for the gospel from his mother's womb. So all of his background, all of his culture, all of his education, all of those things, Paul saw that all of this was part of what God was doing to prepare him. And you know, that's true with us too. And I say that because sometimes uh, we get wrong ideas as Christians. We get the wrong ideas sometimes when we become Christians and we think, well, you know, yes, I did this and I've been gifted to do that. But, you know, of course, God doesn't want me doing that anymore. And obviously, if it's sinful, he doesn't. But there are, are certain things that God wants to take and redeem and use those things uh, for his glory. So I am appealing to you uh, younger, and I, I, I'm not so much appealing to my generation because I already know my brain is kind of going in reverse. Uh, it's got all the information it can take, and now it's just, it's just deleting a bunch of stuff. So. <laughs> but for you, <laughs> maybe that's just me. Uh, but for you, <laughs> that you still have capacity. You can still um, uh, use your mind for God. For the service of God, he gave you that uh, for his purpose. You know, many, many, many years ago, there was an 18-year-old young lady who went off to, um, she went off to an evangelical college, but she found that in her uh, biblical courses, they were being taught by an extremely liberal professor who was doing his best to undermine the faith of the students. That happens, you know, unfortunately sometimes. But that's what was happening to her. And she was desperate for answers. And she was like, you know, how can I, how can I get some assurance? And how can I respond back to the professor? And she was put in touch with a, a young guy. She was 18. He was 28. But he had, uh, you know, one of those guys with a brain. And he had gone off and educated himself and become a, a capable a defender of the faith. And when she got into contact with him, it, it really helped her tremendously to navigate those waters with that uh, liberal professor. You know, many a young person has had their faith destroyed in a classroom by a liberal professor. But she was able to be helped and strengthened. Um, that 18-year-old was my wife, Cheryl. That 28-year-old was Don Stewart. And so, you know, you look at how God took Don as a young guy who he had gifted with a, a brilliant brain and he took that seriously and he prepared himself and all the way to this very day, God's using him in that regard. So, you know, this is, this is, this is important stuff. Um, just really, really quick in closing, there are three men today that... Um, I love and admire what they do. I could never do it, but I love and admire what they do. Ravi Zacharias is one. Uh, and Ravi Zacharias, you know, when we're talking about the Areopagus, you know, he's there. He's on the university campuses all around the world. So Ravi is, uh, you know, he's, it's interesting because I've been in context with Ravi where he can speak to a church congregation and extremely bless you, but then he can go into a university campus and he can, 
not only hold his own, but he can really leave a strong uh, impression. Um, John Lennox is another. John Lennox is an Oxford professor who also, you know, uh, is a scientist. He's, a, he's an incredible debater. He's a fantastic Bible teacher. Again, been in university campuses all over the world. Um, and I so much appreciate that. Uh, Timothy Keller, similar kind of a thing. Uh, Tim has been the pastor of Redeemer Church in New York. Uh, but, you know, he's the guy that gets invited to Google to give a presentation to the Google staff on, you know, what Christianity is, or he gets contacted by the New York Times because they want to know uh, about, you know, what, is, what does Christmas really mean or something like that. Now, here's my point. Those guys are all in their late 60s to early 70s. And I do thank God that there's a, a I know I could name off some other younger generation guys, but I'm appealing to the really young, the teenagers, the, early, the 20s, you know, engage your mind for the glory of God. God wants to reach cultural influencers and perhaps he will use you to do it. But you've got to give yourself over to the preparation and Paul was prepared. His whole life prepared him for many things, but it certainly prepared him uh, for this moment here. So we live in a world that desperately needs, we live in a world of idols, and we live in a world where people don't know the true God, and we need to be able to communicate to them. But in certain cases, we need to have a special gifting or equipping to do that. So, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would just take, Lord, we're all here. We're, we all have different capacities and different callings. But, Lord, I'm, I'm praying specifically for those that would be like Paul in this regard um, that are hearing this message either today or maybe they're going to hear it later. Uh, Lord, that they would take to heart uh, to take those gifts that you've given them and to cultivate them and to use them for your glory, whatever they might be, whether they're uh, the gifts of just mental gifting or talents with art or music and all of those things. Lord, you wanna use us all. And so we pray that whatever our gifting, whatever our calling, that we would be disciplined and diligent to present ourselves to you as workers who are not ashamed, that we can rightly divide your word and we can connect uh, your truth uh, through the things around us to a desperately needy world. So do that, we pray, Lord. And, and Lord, I also pray if there's anyone here today uh, who doesn't yet know you and your word goes out to them, Lord, that it, it's time to repent. It's time to change their mind and their direction. I pray that you would help them to do that very thing today. In Jesus' name, amen.